we have been talking about Lent. And I want to keep talking about Lent. Introduced Lent last, uh, last Sunday. Last Sunday was the first Sunday of Lent. Today is, therefore, the second Sunday of Lent. And uh, this time of Lent, wanted to talk about it as a liturgical excuse, right? A liturgical excuse to quiet down. A liturgical excuse to actually prepare for Easter. And not just the the festival Easter, not just the, the feast day of Easter, the calendar event. But really remembering that originally Lent was the 40-day preparation for baptism. Every new convert to the faith in the very early church in the first century, in the early second century, went through this 40-day period. We don't really do that anymore. Lent was ported over liturgically to be the 40 days before Easter and the preparation for that new life. But it really is about a preparation for a new life. It's about a preparation for a spiritual awakening, for a breakthrough, for a new understanding of what it means to be present in God, to be present through our lives. Last week we read a little article by a a man who had just turned 78 and he was talking about that uh, he would like to say that he had lived his life in such a way that he was a contemplative by intention, but really he was a contemplative by catastrophe. Now we can do that. We can let the catastrophes of life, we can let the traumas, we can let the intense moments take us into contemplative space. And by that we mean those moments are intense enough that they just displace all other thoughts, displace everything else that we think we know. They can take us right to the edge of the abyss where everything that we use to make meaning up to that point in our lives is suddenly in question or gone. But if we wait for those moments to come to us, we're missing all this time in between. If we can become contemplative by intention, if we can intentionally quiet down, if we can intentionally clear the way, begin the process of questioning everything we think we know in preparation for selling everything, as Jesus said, give it away so that we can actually see truth as it is and not just as we expect it to be, not just as we've received it, not just as our fear-based programs for happiness have made it seem illusory ways of looking at life, an illusory worldview. So that's what we want to talk talk about today, because to become contemplative by intention is easy to say. How do we do it? What are some ways that we can do in our own life right now that can make a difference? So I wanted to develop that a little bit. Remembering that Lent is about 40-ness. Remember, we went through the 40s in the Bible last time. All the times that 40 is meant as a time of trial and testing leading into a rebirth, this new birth that Jesus is always talking about. The 40-ness of Lent is meant to mirror Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. This is his time where he had to go through everything that is that we're talking about. Now, the church has taken this time of Lent, this 40-ness that we're mirroring from Jesus, to be a time of fasting, to be a time of deprivation, as a penance, basically. A penance for our sin, as a cleansing, an absolution in preparation for either baptism, Easter in this case, But when you think of Lent that way, the way that I was raised with Lent, it's kind of passive. Yes, you're you're taking things out. You have to actually do that. But then it's a matter of just kind of sitting back and being absolved. There isn't something active that we're doing. And it's negative in content. We always dreaded having to give up the things that we loved. As a kid, it was candy bars, right? Or whatever it happened to be. But to give up those things was not a pleasant thing to do. So there's this passive and this negative connotation to Lent that I want to try to work with you to turn into an active and positive, affirmative action. Because for Jesus, that's exactly what it was in the desert. Yes, he was driven to exhaustion. But the deprivation that he intentionally and willingly took on in that space of time was for the purpose of stripping away any distractions in his life anything that was limiting in his life. His connection with God was so strong. He wanted so much more that he was willing to go through this. And if you think about it, Jesus leaving into the wilderness, we just kind of let it roll off our tongue. But Jesus had a life. 
just as you all and we all have lives. Think about what it meant for him to actually do that, to leave his home, to leave his family, to leave his business, to leave his community and friends. He was a man who was very connected, obviously, because of everything we know about him. But to leave all of that for this fortiness of the wilderness, the four S's of silence and solitude and stillness and simplicity. Imagine the reaction that his family would have had to that, right? I mean, if you just told your family, I'm going to go into the desert for uh, 40 days or I'm, I'm going to go in for an indeterminate amount of time, I've got to leave. What would be the reaction to that? Jesus had siblings. The scriptures tell us he had brothers and sisters. His father was probably already dead. Joseph was already dead. So there's Mary. As the eldest, he would have been in charge of the family. He would have been the head of the household. Everyone looks up to him. And now he's leaving? Yes, there were people who could take over, but imagine that. If you go out to Mark 3, 21, when Jesus comes back and starts teaching, his family thinks he's nuts. They want to have him committed. Basically, that's what they're talking about. Go back and read. Mark 3.21, and see. They want to take hold of him. They want to bring him home. They basically want to put him in the back and shut the door because he's embarrassing the family. In an honor-shame society, remember, bringing dishonor to the family was exactly what they saw Jesus doing with all this crazy talk, with everything that he was doing, with everything that he had done. Jesus would have paid a heavy price to leave and do what he did. Now, as I'm saying this, this may sound really strange to you because we focus so much on Jesus as God that we forget he was fully man as well. Scripture absolutely is clear on this, tells us he was human in every way that we are human, faced everything that we face. He had to grow. Read Luke 2. He had to grow in wisdom and stature. He had to learn. He had to do all of the psychological, emotional, and spiritual work that every one of us have to do, and that's what the wilderness experience is really all about. He went out there to dismantle all of the fear-based programs, whatever they would have been in his life. Were they there as Jesus? If he was fully man as we are man, they had to have been. And when he goes out there and faces those three symbolic temptations, encapsulating all of the possible temptations and trials and things that we need to surpass in our lives, then we see he is facing exactly what we are, to turn stones into bread. That is the, the biological drive that we have for survival and for security. When Satan says, you can have power over all these kingdoms if you bow down before me, that's our biological drive for power and control. We all have that. And when he says, throw yourself down and let angels bear you up from the pinnacle of the temple, that's our need for esteem and affection. All of those basic drives that we have as human beings that drive us in such negative, dysfunctional, and sometimes pathological ways are exactly what Jesus was coming into grips with. By clearing out the distractions, he was able to put those things down. Always in connection with scripture, always in connection with his tradition, but he puts them down in such a way when he comes back, he can say that I and the Father are one. He has that ability to be completely balanced as a human being. If Jesus didn't have to go through this himself, then there's really no way, capital W, for us to follow. That way of Jesus, what would there be to follow if he had no way to show us? What would he have to teach us if he hadn't gone through this himself? There would be nothing for him to teach and there would be nothing for us to follow. But again, so often we take such a passive relationship with Jesus that he is the perfect sacrifice and he does everything and we just come under the covering. But that's not what Jesus is telling us, is it? He is saying, do you need to go this route? And the early followers called themselves followers of this way. Not of Jesus, but of the way. They understood we needed to follow the path of Jesus, the way that he went. Now, yes, we can do that much, much less extremely now. I'm not advocating for any of you to leave your homes and your families and your jobs. So just make sure you understand that, not that you would listen to me anyway, right? It is an interior journey after all. 
But you know what? It may be harder for us to take that interior journey if we aren't also taking an exterior journey. As hard as that exterior journey was physically for Jesus, at least it matched up. For us to stay in our lives the way that they are and try to take this interior journey is really kind of a contradiction in terms, isn't it? We really have to put a lot more emphasis on the interior journey as we keep everything else in place. This is what we're doing. This is what Lent can be about. It can be this positive, affirmative action that we take to have an intentional, concentrated training period that can bring us into deeper awareness of God's presence. That's what we're after. So the question then becomes, how do we do it? How do we clear these distractions and limitations? And I suppose the first question is, what is distracting in your life? I mean, are you even aware of the distractions that there are in your life? I mean, technically, I suppose, everything is distracting, right? But especially in our culture right now, how about technology? Technology is so distracting. I mean, think about just TV. We've had that for generations, right? But now we've got social media. We've got smartphones. We've got video games. We've just got car radios. We've got music and politics, especially this year, politics and 24-7 news cycles, cable, constant noise, constant saturation, constant stimulation. Where can you go now that you don't have an ad? You go to pump gas, they're playing you ads. You know, you go in some elevators, they're playing you ads. Anywhere there's a captive audience where eyeballs are going to be for more than 30 seconds, someone's playing you an ad. I remember watching, um, what was it, Blade Runner back fully, what was that, 40 years ago? And the way that they, they uh, depicted Los Angeles was with these Build, full buildings were screens that were playing ads. And I think, oh, man, that would never happen. Are you kidding me? It's happening now. You know, look at Tokyo. I mean, it's incredible. You want to talk about distractions. We can't get away from it. But can we turn it down? Can we at least take some things that aren't absolutely necessary and turn them off? And then I suppose the question becomes, what are we going to replace it with? And see, here's the catch for us. We fear silence. As a people, as a culture, obviously we fear silence because every time there's a bit of silence, we rush to fill it in. Why do you think that would be? What's the problem with silence? Even in conversations, if someone takes too long a breath, we want to jump in and supply a word or whatever. It's just, it's so hard to be silent. I think it's because in the silence, there's nowhere to hide. Our real self is just there, exposed. We have to face that. We have to face the things that we really need to face in silence. Those four S's, silence, solitude, stillness, simplicity. If you really move into that, where is there to hide? The work that we need to do is right in front of us. We also fear stillness because we rush to activate it. If anything is still, if anything isn't stimulating enough, then we're always looking for the next thing to do. We're always talking about being bored. I wanted to read a just a little article here that has to do with boredom. Now, this has to do with kids, but I mean, think about it in terms of all of us as adults as well. Mom, Dad, I'm bored. Makes you feel put on the spot, right? You might even feel like you're a bad parent. Most of us are pressured to solve this problem right away. We usually respond to our kids' boredom by providing technological entertainment or structured activities. But that's actually counterproductive. Children need to encounter and engage with the raw stuff that life is made of. What's that, you ask? Unstructured time. Isn't it? Have you ever thought of life that way? I mean, what is life made of? It's unstructured time. You know? Ask your dog what life is made of. You know, we just left our dog still sleeping on the bed, right? That whole day, you know, from the time the sun comes up to the time that it gets dark again, however the dog <laughs> experiences that, it's completely unstructured. Wow. Some of you who are retired understand that very well as well. Unstructured time is what life is made of. Why is unstructured time so important to your child's healthy development or ours as well? One of our biggest challenges as adults and even as teenagers is learning to manage our time well. So it's essential for children to have the experience of deciding for themselves how to use periods of unstructured time or they'll never learn how to manage it. 
maybe even more important, unstructured time gives children the opportunity to explore their inner and outer worlds, which is the beginning of creativity. This is how they learn to engage with themselves and the world, to imagine and invent and create. Unstructured time also challenges children to explore their own passions. If we keep them busy with lessons and structured activity, or they fill in their time with screen entertainment, they never learn to respond to the stirrings of their own hearts, which might lead them to build a fort in the backyard, or make a monster from clay, or write a short story or a song, organize the neighborhood kids into making a movie, or simply studying the bugs on the sidewalk, as Einstein reportedly did for hours. These calls from our heart are what lead us to those passions that make life meaningful, and they are available to us beginning in childhood. But only when children are given free reign to explore and pursue their interests as they lead them. In other words, to strip away all the distractions and just be, just be. And rather than see it as a negative, see it as an opportunity. So what if we did? Like, turn off the car radio, drive in silence. Turn off the TV that's in the background all the time in your home. What if we limit our screen time or limit our tech time? TV, internet, smartphone, whatever. Can we create some boredom for ourselves? Can we create some unstructured time that we can take a breath? Just like when someone pauses in a conversation and you want to fill that gap, maybe to just sit back and hear what they have to say. In our time as well, to sit back and see what the next thing to do might be. This would be along the lines of really giving something up for Lent. And not just a candy bar, but giving it up as a positive clearing of space in your life, interiorly, and maybe exteriorly as well. And replacing it with what? Maybe centering prayer, just quiet time, meditation. And if it's during your day, just the mindful presence of actually going through your day only thinking about the thing that you're actually doing, the conversation you're having, the task that is right at hand. Is that possible? 35 some years ago, when I was just starting this process for myself, I really was trying to be Thomas Merton. I wanted to be Thomas Merton. If you don't know who that is, he's a very famous monk, cloistered monk. But what I did manage to do was to try to be a monk in the city. I at least did that much. I was living alone. This is pre-Marian in my apartment, which I kept dead quiet all the time. There was nothing ever on in my car when I was driving. There was nothing ever on. I had my rituals that I got up every morning and did and included, you know, running in the dark and then time, meditation time and centering prayer time and journaling time and all this. I really kept those rituals very, very clearly. It was a time for me to just really turn it down. I had no idea how much I needed that. I had no idea how noisy my life was, especially inside, the inside of my head. It's a very bad neighborhood, I gotta tell you. Noisy, like the inside of a pinball machine, really working to try to quiet it down, made all the difference at that time in my life. For the most part, I still do that. I still keep the house quiet. I still keep my car quiet for the most part, but there's a heck of a lot more distractions. I'm not living alone anymore. There's stuff going on. There's a dog that barks, right? There's kids. But I try to keep that. There's been a holdover from all of that. But this time of Lent, can we concentrate? Can we be monks in the city to a certain degree? And what is it about silence anyway? Why is silence so important? If we are in silence, what is it that we're actually listening for? I want to pull an image from our Holy Week reading that's coming up here in just a few more weeks to see if we can illustrate what it is that Jesus is talking about in terms of silence. When he rides in on Palm Sunday into Jerusalem, he's, uh, he's met by both the adoring crowds and then also the scrutiny of the Romans and the Jewish authorities and all of that. And there is this conflict that is boiling over. But at Luke 19, starting at verse 37, as soon as Jesus was approaching, this is approaching the, the walls of the city, Near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. 
peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Whenever I read that, do you remember Jesus Christ Superstar? I just love the line, you know. Why waste your breath moaning at the, cloud, at the crowds? Nothing can be done to stop the shouting. If every tongue were still, the noise would still continue. The rocks and stones themselves would start to sing. Hosanna, Hosanna. This is what Jesus is talking about. If we were to quiet everything, there would still be something going on. And that's what it is about silence. Silence isn't the complete absence. You're not, your mind is not empty. You're choosing not to focus on anything so that you can be aware of everything at the same time. Your mind hasn't just focused on one thing to the exclusion of all else and especially what's present. You're able to be aware of everything because you're not focusing. The rocks and the stones will actually cry out. What does that mean? Is that just really nice, sweet poetry? Is that what Jesus is doing here? We probably heard, and Scripture tells us, that all creation testifies to the truth. If we let it, it can't be silenced. There is no way to silence it. You may have heard of the cosmological argument for God, which basically is just saying, hey, because things exist, there had to be a cause. There had to be a first cause. This stuff just doesn't come into existence by itself. But the problem with that is it doesn't tell us anything about the Creator. What are, if there is this first cause, what is this creator all about? So the teleological argument, which says, hey, there is a purpose to the things that we see all around us. That's the watchmaker argument, right? You come walking the beach, you find a watch on the, on the sand, and you say, oh, there had to have been a watchmaker because this thing has purpose. There's a reason for this. So some designer had to design it. The teleological argument says, because of the way everything works with purpose, there's an end result. Therefore, there had to be an intelligent creator. These are arguments that we can make intellectually, but maybe there's something even more, something even that's physical. I ran across this several years ago, and it turns out that the heavens themselves make music. This is so crazy. Bill probably knows all about this stuff. Astronomers say they have heard the sound of a black hole singing. This is from the New York Times. And what it is singing, and perhaps has been singing for more than two billion years, they say, is B-flat. <laughs> but B-flat, 57 octaves lower than middle C. So if he plunks down middle C in the middle of his keyboard, 57 octaves lower. The notes, quote-unquote, appear as pressure waves rolling and spreading as a result of outbursts from a supermassive black hole through a hot, thin gas that fills the Perseus cluster of galaxies 250 million light-years distant. This cluster of galaxies are 30,000 light-years across and have a period of oscillation of 10 million years. By comparison, the deepest, lowest notes that humans can hear have a period of about 1 20th of a second. Okay, what the heck does that mean? All right, if Bill hits a low... A on the keyboard. That is 27.5 hertz. Hertz is the number of oscillations per second. So that means the string, if that were a real piano, the string would be vibrating back and forth 27 and a half times each second. If Vernon were to hit his low B string, that would be 31 hertz. So the string is vibrating 31 times each second. What we can hear as human beings is usually 20 to 20. 20 hertz, that would be 20 oscillations per second to 20,000 hertz. That's the highest we can hear. 20,000 vibrations per second. This note that is being sung by the black hole has an oscillation period of 10 million years. Do you get the difference here? Of course, he's saying, how in the world did they find it if it's oscillating at every 10 million years? Well, they did. And the, you know, we always heard that space is a vacuum. There's no sound in space. But because of this gas cloud that encompasses this whole cluster of galaxies, the sound can actually pass, few, pass through. And these scientists have heard it. And then they just sped it up like crazy until you could hear it. You can actually go on the internet and hear this sound. It's really spooky. It's, it's just an amazing kind of sound. 
The black hole is playing the lowest note in the universe, said Dr. Andrew Fabian, an X-ray astronomer at the Institute for Astronomy at Cambridge University in England. Not only that, there's a microwave background that scientists have been able to pick up. This is electromagnetic energy of all the various celestial bodies and the nebula and all of this, and it can all be heard also as music. And you can look that up on the Internet if you want to hear what that sounds like. It's really boring music. You know, it's just, just a, a bed. But we've heard boring is good now, right? So that's something to think about. Now, Jesus, of course, is not being so technical here. But I think what he's recognizing, that there is unceasing music. There is this unceasing expression of truth in everything around us. It's built into the, the way that this universe was created. It's all frequencies. It's all vibration. It's all energy. The rocks are crying out. The question is, will we listen? Can we make meaning of what happens in the silence with whatever shares our moment with us? And of course, then how do we listen to this unceasing music of truth all around us? Well, Paul calls it unceasing prayer. And take a look what he says at 1 Thessalonians starting right at verse 16. This is 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now think about that. That's kind of a different kind of prayer. Amp is making noise. That's a different kind of prayer. It's not made of noise. It's not made of words. It's not made of thought, right? It's made of pure awareness, the kind of prayer that he's talking about. How do we know that? Because notice that he gives us three directives here in this one short verse, not just one. And the context is actually going to define what he means by unceasing prayer. Now, we're going to read that over, read the, the sections that are in your insert for in just a minute. But I want to read a little bit about this from a book called the In the Spirit of Happiness. This was uh, written by the, the monks of New Skidi, which is an orthodox um, monastery and compound that started in 1966. It's really an interesting thing up in upstate New York. Um, they're the ones with the German shepherds. I don't know if you guys know about these guys. They raise German shepherds and they do all kinds of cool stuff. Anyway, they wrote this book talking about this very subject. Unceasing prayer, then, is not a technique. To isolate Paul's admonition, to take it out of its context, does violence to his intent. Surrounding the admonition are two other exhortations that express how he conceived of unceasing prayer. Now, you can follow along in your inserts if you want to. The first, rejoice. Other words, be happy always. Greet everyone and everything open, openly and cheerfully, even in adversity. Sing together joyfully. Can we do that? We do that here. How often do you do that? Are you able to just be cheerful? Able to walk in a room and smile and laugh? And Can we do that? It changes the nature of the way we experience our moments. Even if you're faking it till you make it. You act that way. You greet that way. And it changes the way that you perceive the relationship. It changes the experience that you will have. He says, pray without ceasing. Don't forget to pray. Be open to God's presence. Don't stop praying together just because difficulties arise or when everything's fine. Pay attention and avoid distractions. This pray without ceasing is what we were just talking about, is clearing away the distractions. It's about keeping a constant thread of awareness of presence. That task within the task sometimes that we talk about. All the little things that you're doing, all the details, but underneath that is this glue that holds everything together. Can you simultaneously be aware of the task and at the same time, that glue, that oneness? And that can lead you to being grateful in all circumstances. Be generous and appreciative. Find something positive, even during reversals and setbacks. Display your unity and heal your divisions by giving thanks and prayer and Eucharist, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. These three directives of Paul are telling us what this unceasing prayer is. If we just hear unceasing pray, prayer or pray always, we're automatically going to think we're supposed to be thinking something, we're supposed to be saying something. But when you put all of these together, what you have 
is a way of being appreciative of everything that's going on because you're aware of it. And that's going to give you a sense of well-being, basic okayness. And every time we approach God, we have that sense of okayness. Even though our circumstances haven't changed, even though all the things undone are still undone, even though there's still not enough zeros in the bank account, we can have that momentary realization. Everything is going to be okay somehow. And that leads to the gratitude. This is how it works. Paul isn't just recommending a basic prescription. Much more profoundly, he's exhorting his readers to an attitude, a frame of mind, a way of being that is outgoing no matter how discouraged they might happen to be. A habitual, unfailing spirit of joyful openness. Being consciously, constantly conscious of the presence of God amidst the changing complexion of everyday life. This is what unceasing prayer means. Not saying prayers continually. And as we grow up, we learn to respond creatively with faithful trust in the presence of God in the most difficult of human circumstances. Tragedies, disagreements, even moments of ennui. Don't you love that word, ennui? Discontented boredom, you could look it up. Even moments of ennui will manifest the constant prayerful direction that doesn't flinch in the face of doubt, darkness, despair, or even death. The whole of our experience to him, to God, joy, sadness, anger, suffering, desire, frustrations are offered, hiding nothing from God, even our deepest thoughts. This is what prayer is. This ability to share, to see the purpose in everything, one of Richard Rohr's books, Everything Belongs, to see how everything belongs, to see how it connects in all of our experience, all throughout all of our waking moments, not holding anything back, not resisting anything, just letting it be, letting it flow. Just our simple participation in our moments is what does it. That's really it. Are you participating? Are you really there? Are you part of the moment that's happening? Are you standing outside of it? You know, like looking in a window at someone having their Christmas dinner outside in the cold. Or are you inside? We do that with our minds. We take ourselves outside looking in as if through some sort of frame. When you enter a moment and you feel the smile spreading across your face and you didn't even know it was coming, you didn't think about it, you didn't give it any permission, all of a sudden you realize that you're smiling. That's the prayer. That's the involvement. It just happens to us. And if we develop that attitude, that's what becomes unceasing in everything that we're doing. What we allow ourselves to make us smile is also what makes us pray. We have to allow it. You don't have to smile if you don't want to, but if you forget yourself and just flow into the moment, what makes you smile is also what is making you pray because it's what's making you aware of God's presence. It's what's making you aware of that deeper connection. I think, you know, we've, we've gotten so many years out People don't know about Bubba anymore, but Bubba was one of our three co-founders of The Effect, and his picture is in this little room here. He's the one who his, his uh, endowment still makes this place possible for us. But Bubba was just an amazing guy. Ten years ago, he gave one of the messages, and we were still across the way. And uh, when he died in, in 2018, just before the pandemic, um, I extracted about six minutes of his talk, and it was, I wish we had time to listen to it right now. Maybe we'll do that again some other time. But it was the essence of who he was as a person. He was very simple. He didn't have a developed theology. He didn't really care about theology, you know. But he was deeply connected to God. And what he was talking about there was that how he saw God in the waves at the beach, in the sun, in the dolphins and the pelicans and the kids on the beach playing and screaming. And in his parrot, Simon, he had this parrot that could talk and was just the greatest thing in the world. But he talked about all those things as locking him in. And he felt like he was walking forward in lockstep with God. 
because of the experiences he had with all that was just around him. I remember when we moved to San Clemente, Marion went crazy in the backyard because she just wanted to have like this aviary, right? And so it was all about the, the fountain that we had so the birds could swim and do what they do and splash. And then there was all these seed socks hanging from branches all over the place and hummingbird nectar feeders and, and the birds would come and just, you know, it wasn't just Marion that was smiling. You just see these birds and what they do and how they squabble and splash and it just here's a smile across your face. To get lost in that moment that the smallest of things that we take so for granted can just come in and open us up in a way that we're just not even prepared for. But we're prepared enough to allow the moment to speak to us, for the rocks to sing. What makes you smile? What are those things? Do we have to wait for those things in order to pray? Do we have to wait for those things to make us smile and draw us in so that we can pray? How is that unceasing? There's got to be a way that we can do this so that it's on demand, to use our techno term, right? How can we learn to pray repeatedly, on demand, to keep that conversation going, to keep that smile pasted on our face. How do we strip away the distractions that keep us from this kind of prayer? And this is where the balance comes in. And the balance is between immersion in the moment, like we're talking about, right? But also a disciplined structure that we're going to need. If we're just waiting for inspiration, man, you can be waiting till the cows come home. There's got to be a balance. When it comes, beautiful, it's there. And you're ready for it. But if we're going to have unceasing prayer, then we better have some structure, and we better have some discipline to that structure. We've got to have a balance between what I like to call the offline and the online. The offline is times that we, we carve out. That's our quiet time. This is our prayer time. This is how we learn the technique of what it means to step away from your thoughts, to become grounded, to learn not to focus on any one thing, not to choose, but just be aware without thinking about it. We have to learn that. It doesn't come, well, it comes natural to us as children, but we're so far away from that, we have to relearn it. But now we've got this conscious, egoic brain shining like the sun in our minds that we're going to have to get around. We have to learn how to do that. But then, if we just do that, what are we going to do with it? We've got this skill, we take it online, and we take it throughout our day as presence. Or as I said, you're only thinking about the thing you're doing, and eventually you're not even thinking about that. You're purely aware and doing what you do, just part of it, because the first thought's going to take you back out. Here's this balance we need to have. Immersion in the moment, but some structure and discipline that we're actually setting ourselves to. Mindful presence and set times for formal prayer. Personal and possibly corporate as well, doing it with other people connecting with other people. And Jesus exemplifies this balance. Take a look from back at the monks from Skidi. Jesus himself, as a first century Jew, was raised in this same spirit of prayer, as the Gospels show us. His life opens up for us the meaning of unceasing prayer. Jesus knew the value of both liturgical prayer and private prayer, but he hardly walked around mumbling prayers all the time. Like the prophets, he openly criticizes those who multiply their prayers instead of fostering the, the requisite interior attitude. And now they quote, and you can take a look on your, on your inserts at Matthew 6. We read this just a few weeks ago. My version is going to be a little different, but follow along. He says, when you pray, don't be like the play actors. Don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners so that people may see them at it. Believe me, they have had all the reward they're going to get. But when you pray, go into your own room, shut your door, and pray to your Father privately. Your God, who sees all private things, will reward you. And when you pray, don't rattle off long prayers like the pagans who think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. After all, God knows your needs before you ask him. Jesus is one in whom we see the balance of the inner and the outer, the sacred and the secular, while teaching the importance of both formal liturgical participation and prayer and solitude. 
He demonstrates that the scope of his spirit of prayer extends far beyond these to embrace the whole of his daily experience. Amidst the demands of his public ministry, Jesus is perpetually prayerful in a manner appropriate to whatever life brings before him. His whole life is a prayer because he is always conscious of, the, of God in heaven in whose presence he lives. He is never not praying. Yet most people observing him might never have suspected this, though the contents of his everyday life, through the contents of his everyday life, he becomes prayer, though in a matter entirely in harmony with his human nature. Every act and gesture, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is a movement of adoration, an offering of prayer. Our human reality is what we bring to God, our very means to God. If, like Jesus, we are to become a living prayer, it cannot be in a purely quantitative way, by futilely multiplying prayer upon prayer for the rest of our life. We can only be faithful to the mandate to unceasing prayer when we seek it qualitatively, by reverently listening and discerning the presence of God in every situation in life, by conforming our hearts and minds and behavior with the words and attitudes we articulate in prayer and by embracing our whole life and presenting it as a gift to God. See, this life of prayer usually starts in the community. It's easier to do in a group, to be structured, right? And to be disciplined to that structure with like minds all around us. I kind of think of it about if you ever have uh, done bicycling in a group, drafting after the bike in front of you, right? Because the first person is facing all of the headwind, all of the resistance. You can go into that sweet spot, that little envelope that's created, and that is, and what you basically do is you alternate so that as the first person tires, then he can go back and draft for a while. That's what we do in a group setting. We can draft after each other. We can lean into each other. This is the way that this works, leaning on each other, but... That's only the first part of it. There's so much that needs to be done interiorly, and nobody can do that for us. And nobody can really do it with us either. It's really our own expression to God. People say that they don't need church. You hear that all the time. We're hearing it more and more these days. We don't need church. And, you know, technically that's true. But I find more than often it is an excuse for having a lack of structure or discipline in the person's life. Or it is an expression of that, at least. Community, accountability, structure, discipline, and service. These are what set the foundation of a real prayer life. And Church Done Well provides all of that. Community, accountability. Just being known well enough that people will miss you if you're not here and give you a call. That connection is what's keeping us in the community letting us know we are a part of community. If the community doesn't meet on a regular basis, at least once a week, then there really is no community. That structure is important. Are you disciplined? Are you showing up? And are you giving back? That is what gives us the foundation for the kind of prayer that we were talking about. Have you been to a retreat? Anyone been to one of these weekend retreats? Most of us have, I think, right? You go to the retreat, and it's, it, you just think, this is life-changing. Oh, my gosh. You know, I'm feeling this awakening. I'm feeling this energy. I'm feeling all this. And then by Wednesday, everything seems to just have grayed back out again. Why is that? Well, the retreat provided the structure and the discipline for those two and a half precious days for you, or however long it was. And in that time of focus and concentration, you got there. You felt this. You felt something. But then you go back home, and all of that structure and discipline is gone. And it's no time at all before we lose it. We need to keep our own structure, our own discipline, or it's going to dissipate again as soon as we get back into the usual rhythms of our life. So how can we create our own structure, our own discipline, between the formal times of prayer that we have as a group this last little reading here that I wanted to do for you, see if we can illustrate that. 
What they do in this book often is they have these fictional conversations between a seeker, someone who's showing up to the monastery to try to consider whether they want to join, and one of the elders. And in those conversations, they try to get out some of the, the points and concepts they're trying to make. So this is one of those conversations. The seeker remembered asking Father Lawrence one day, Abba, when we last talked, we were talking about Paul's injunction to pray without ceasing, but to be honest, I'm stymied. How's one supposed to do that? When I try to pray always, I'm doing the very thing you say we shouldn't do, which is attempting to repeat verbal prayers. Then when I don't say prayers, I feel I'm not praying at all. What can I do about this? There's a paradox, all right. But it's really not the impossibility you're suggesting. What we're really looking for is to live in a state of prayer. A state of prayer? That's right. Being in a state of prayer involves living in a manner that regardless of what we might be doing, we're always praying. Yeah, but what do you mean by that? How do I get to that? Well, for starters, and this has nothing to do with feelings, it's a question of awareness, something that's present regardless of what we're feeling. But it would also seem to require more than that. What makes all the difference, I believe, is the intention to please God. In addition to the consciousness of being in God's presence, were we to have the constant willingness, always and everywhere, to do what is pleasing to God, then such an attitude would constitute a state of prayerfulness. Yeah, but I still don't see how that translates into actual practice. I mean, my problem is that when I am busy living, I seem to forget God's presence. Then when I try to change that, it seems to take me in the direction of saying prayers all the time, like repeating the Jesus prayer. Sound familiar with what we do in our own minds here? The father replies, you have to remember that the state I am talking about has nothing directly to do with an act. For example, simply uttering a series of prayers doesn't constitute a state of prayerfulness. Your mind could be a million miles away. Prayerfulness is a condition we bring about in ourselves that is the correct climate for any individual act of prayer. And in fact, for everything else we do. This can seem subtle, but it's not just word games. It means recognizing that we're not always thinking about everything that we're conscious of. Take yourself right now. You know that you have two feet, but you weren't actually thinking about them before I mentioned them. Yeah? You got two feet? In a similar way, we can become increasingly conscious of being in God's presence in spite of the fact that we're not always thinking thoughts about God. Get that subtle difference? We can be aware without thinking about it. But we will think of God often, nevertheless, and the more we do think of God, the more likely we'll also become aware of how we should better conduct our living, our choices. A very good way to do this is by consciously associating elements of our daily experience with the presence of God, okay? Elements of daily experience with the presence of God and allowing them to remind us of God's presence. When we do this over time, they not only sustain our consciousness of being in God's presence, but they actually strengthen our determination to live in a way that pleases God. For example, let's say a secretary works in an office where phone calls come in rapidly, one after another. What if the secretary were to associate each ring of the phone with being conscious of being in God's presence? Okay? Phone rings, bell rings, and then you're using that as a call to prayer, just as a reminder, okay? The phone ring is now about God's presence. Initially, this will obviously require deliberately work on the secretary's part, but as he or she perseveres in doing it, the practice will become more and more of a habit. Eventually, every time the phone rings, or any bell for that matter, the secretary will be reminded of being in God's presence. In the context of a busy office where phones are ringing frequently, being and remaining in God's presence will gradually become the habitual state that the secretary lives in and which spurs to always give the best, which in no way interferes with the work. 
In a way, the process can be likened to repeatedly placing a drop of red ink into a pail of clear water. At first, the red color won't be perceptible. But over time, should the process continue, the steady addition of drops will change the color of the clear water to red. In fact, the point will come in which there won't be a perceptible distinction between the water in the pail and the ink in its container. The way in which we mindfully and deliberately form the habit of being conscious, of being in the presence of God, the way it gradually begins to color our whole life, is a process very much like that. And so... If in the course of consciously building this habit of being in the presence of God, we add as well the habitual intention of pleasing God in all the things we do, then no matter what we might be doing or thinking about, it becomes an act of prayer, simply because we're performing these acts in a prayerful state. The ancients would have a call to prayer so many times per day where the bells would ring. If it's a, it's a Muslim culture, then the... the uh, the person would chant from the minarets, right? But there was a call to prayer. We always had the Angelus when I was a kid growing up. Remember those bells that would ring at noon? They still do at the Basilica over here. That would be a call to prayer. It's a reminder. Sometimes I tell people, you know, choose a, sep- a special ring that no one else has and set that as a timer to ring at multiple times during the day, just at intervals, just as a reminder. Check your presence. Where are you? Where's your head at? Is your head where your feet are? Are you thinking about what you're doing? Are you all over the place? And come back to that presence. Keep coming back to that presence. Find a way to keep bringing yourself back. The ancients would literally say the Jesus prayer hundreds of times a day. You know, Kyrie eleison, a short form of it in Greek that just means Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. They would say it hundreds of times a day. Well, that sounds like a mantra. It is a mantra. It sounds like the antithesis of what we're talking about. It is. But what would happen over time, like putting those drops of red ink into the water? Eventually, they said that the prayer, they were no longer saying the prayer. The prayer was saying them. And eventually, the words became unnecessary because the attitude had been established that they are constantly in contact and connection with presence. Is there something that we can do like this example he's giving, that will turn a negative into a positive. When that phone rings, it's like, I don't want one more phone call. Well, now it's an opportunity to just remember our presence and to move into that call with the idea of just following God's values. Pleasing God just means mirroring God's values. And then we act gratefully. And then we act with a sense of well-being. And now we are back into unceasing prayer. Can we take what we do and turn that around in some way? Because unceasing prayer is just awareness that is gradually built. And it sneaks up on you. You won't even realize it. It's like that suddenly you find out you're smiling. It's going to sneak up on you as it builds up. Other people are going to tell you that there's something different about you before you even realize it yourself. It sneaks up. If we can continue to clear away unnecessary distractions, taking out the things that are just noise and we don't need, but using the necessary distractions, like the phone ringing in the office, to remind ourselves of God's presence. We're getting a twofer here. We're clearing space, but we're also using what we need to deal with to bring us back, to to move us into presence. And then... Over time, gradually, we can start to hear the rocks singing everywhere. You can't force this on yourself. You can't make yourself do it. The more you try to do that, the more you're using the apparatus that we're trying to step away from, right? You will just realize that you are as you keep showing up to this presence. Bubba's genius was being able to hear the rocks singing in every little detail of his life. Why do I believe that he was actually doing that enough to bring him up to you? Well, if you ever saw Bubba's smile, you would know. It was electric. Go look at that picture and see that smile. But when you were in that presence, it was like someone was running a current through his face. That smile told me everything about what he was experiencing in that moment. How will you know 
How will you know if you're hearing the rocks singing? Well, we can go right back to Paul's threeness, can't we? That idea of unceasing prayer married with a sense of well-being, a sense of okayness, and an attitude of gratitude are those present in your life. can't measure the unceasing prayer directly, but you can measure it by your sense of well-being. You can measure it by the gratitude that you have for things, even when things aren't completely the way that you want them. Our prayer, this prayer we're talking about, this awareness we're talking about, is only as real and only as unceasing as our sense of gratitude and well-being. And you can only feel grateful and well at moments when you're hearing the rocks sing in whatever way that is presenting to you at the moment. And as I said, it doesn't mean your circumstances are fixed. It only means that you've let the moment be enough right now. Hold the rest at bay. That's for another moment. That's for tomorrow. That work will be waiting for me. That problem will still be waiting for me. But right now, this moment is enough. And I can let myself smile because the rocks are singing. There's no other way to do this. When Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and there's no other way to God, this is what he's talking about. This is that way. And if you haven't figured it out, (laughs) hearing the rocks sing is the metaphor that I'm using right now for finding meaning, finding purpose, finding presence in even the smallest, least likely spot in your life in this moment. Because if you can't find presence there, you're not going to find God anywhere else. It is here and now or never. This is the only moment Here and now, the intersection of here and now is the only place we can access God. Most of our moments are mundane. Let's face it. Most of our moments are not spectacular. Most of our moments were filled with seemingly insignificant things, but God is singing in those rocks as well as the ones that we imagine. Can we find God there? This moment. This is what we're talking about this Lent. Can we, this Lent, use what's left of this time before Easter, just as this concentrated training ground, to learn to listen to the rocks, the smallest things in life, to let them make us smile, to enter into the connection with them in such a way that we are more and more aware that we're praying unceasingly. This is what we're talking about. How do you do it? Maybe you set up some formal quiet time in the morning, 20 to 30 minutes, and you do whatever comes naturally to you. You can read something devotional, not something real studious, just something devotional. Maybe you just sip on your coffee and watch what's happening, listen to birds sing, listen to whatever's going on as the house starts to wake up. Maybe you read something and then you think about it just briefly and then you stop thinking about it and just go back to the coffee. Just have some quiet time. Maybe you do formal centering prayer. Maybe you do meditation. That's great. That's fine too. And then take that out into your day in mindful presence with that sense that there's always something to be grateful for. There's always a person whose day you can make better if you simply smile at them. If you help where you can help, just live your day that way. There's a QR code on the inserts right now that you can scan with your phone and that'll take you to all the tools that you'll need to get into contemplative practice. And of course, if you want to talk about it, ask me. We can talk about it. This is why we're here at The Effect, is to encourage and give you all the tools to engage your own journeys. And this Lent would be a perfect time to maybe get on that path if you haven't already. But this is where the rubber meets the road. This is the way of Jesus. There is not another way. This is the way that we come back to the connection with our God that lets us know that everything is all right. That the good news of the Gospels is there is no bad news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the no bad news part. That is your love. That is absolute that is who you are. 
And this is who we are trying to get to know. We're trying to get to know you in this indiscriminate and degreeless love that you're showering on us every moment. Help us this Lent in however we do it, intensely, informally, whatever, that at Easter time we can say we're a little bit closer to understanding who you are and how that changes everything about the way we experience the moments of our lives. So, Father, thank you for that love, of course. And never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.